Hello, and welcome to the RCC Weekly Sermon Podcast. This week, Pastor Brittany taught from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The disordered desires of our hearts get reordered through discipleship as we discover the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. We have been in a series on discipleship. Um, What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? And last week, we talked about uh, the cost of discipleship, and we talked about how everything costs something, right? Everything costs something. Um, And following Jesus is no different. Anytime we say yes to one thing, we say no to a hundred other things. And so when we say yes to Jesus, we know that along the road, we're going to have to say no to a bunch of things, and it costs something, To go the way of Jesus means we don't go our own way. To say yes to what he has for us is to say no to what the world has for us. But the decisions that we make about cost are based on value. Decisions that we make about cost are based on value. We decide what we are willing to pay, give up, or sacrifice based on how much we value the thing we will gain. Right? We determine what we are willing to pay, give up, or sacrifice based on how much we value the thing that we will gain. So for example, I am willing to give up about three of my dollars for a cup of coffee. I'm willing to give up about three of my dollars because for me, the value of the cup of coffee is about three of my dollars. Don't get me wrong. There are some days, if coffee would only be available to me for 20 of my dollars... I might be willing to pay 20 of my dollars for coffee. But we, we evaluate value based on what we will gain from it. Um, for those of you who have been blessed with being, the gift of being parents, for you mothers out there, at some point in time, you desi- decided that the value of having a child was worth never sleeping again. <laughs> you made a decision, Right? Some of you didn't know you were making that decision until you were in it, but that's on you for not asking questions ahead of time. (laughs) What we decide we are willing to pay, give up, or sacrifice is based on how much we value the thing we will gain. And so as we continue to look at what it, as we continue to talk about what it looks like to be disciples of Jesus, my hope this morning as we look at God's word is that we would see three things. One, that the value of the kingdom God is worth our total investment. Two, that discipleship to Jesus reorders our hearts. And three, that discipleship to Jesus is an invitation to recognize, respond to, and rest in the value of the kingdom of God. We're going to go through each of those things, so if you're panicking that you didn't hear it, um, we'll get there, and I'll go on the screen. Um, But we're going to look at Matthew chapter 13. So if you have your paper Bibles and you want to open to Matthew chapter 13... Um, It's in between a bunch of prophetic names that you can't pronounce and Mark. You can find it there in your paper Bibles. If you don't have a paper Bible, you can look at it on the screen. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 44 to 46 this morning. This is Jesus speaking. He's speaking um, to a crowd of people and, and, and to his disciples. And he says these two things. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. 
And when he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. This is our passage for today. We find this passage right in the middle of a bunch of parables that Jesus is using to teach what the kingdom of God is like. Excuse me. What the kingdom of heaven is like, what the kingdom of God is like. Um, and th- these are parables. So parables, if you're unfamiliar, parables, parables are short stories that are used to illustrate a point. So a parable is not, um, is not a, uh, an allegory. An allegory is where you match each piece of the story to something. So when we read parables, we don't try to figure out, like, what does the field represent and who is the merchant and what is the treasure? We're not trying to figure out every piece. What a parable is used is to, is to give us a point. And so what these two parables are saying is the kingdom of heaven is like this situation. And so in the first one, the kingdom of heaven, very simply, is like finding a treasure that is worth selling everything for. And in the second one, the kingdom of heaven is like finding a priceless pearl that is worth selling everything else you have in order to buy it. Very simple. Simple to understand, not necessarily simple to apply. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure that is more valuable than anything it would cost to buy it with. Does that make sense? Like if I had to liquidate my whole entire life savings to buy this treasure, it would be worth it because it's far more valuable than anything I would give up to get it. In both of these stories, the thing that is found is worth more than whatever it would cost to get it. And so what Jesus is saying here is the value of the kingdom of God is worth our total investment. The value of the kingdom of God is worth total investment. Like we said when we started, we decide what we're willing to pay, give up, or sacrifice based on how much we value the thing that we will gain. What Jesus is saying here is that the value of being in God's kingdom, the value of submitting ourselves under God's rule, of choosing God's way, of choosing to give our lives over to him and being with the king, the value of that is so far surpassing anything else. It's so valuable that when our eyes are open to it, when we find it, when we find the invitation from the God of the universe to submit to the king and find ourselves under his protection and under his rule, it would be worth giving up everything else for it. This is what Jesus is saying. The value of following Jesus and submitting to God is worth everything. Now, most of us good Christians were like, yes, amen, right? The value of the kingdom of God is worth everything, yes. We read this, and we know that's what it's saying to us, and it's no, we know that's how we should feel. Why? Why is the kingdom of God more valuable than anything else? I would argue that the kingdom of God is the only thing of intrinsic value, And here's what I mean by that. I'm going to get a little bit nerdy for a second, but not like Bible nerdy. Like nerdy that's like too smart for me, so I'm just going to like touch it and then we're going to just leave it there. There are two uh, uh, philosophers when they talk about um, value, there are two basic terms for value. There's instrumental value and there's intrinsic value. 
Instrumental value is something that is, is valuable insofar as it leads me to something that I want. Okay? It's a means to an end. So, for example, a washing machine is of instrumental value, right? A washing machine is only valuable to me insofar as it cleans my clothes so I don't smell bad and I don't look dirty. As soon as a washing machine no longer cleans my clothes for me, does it have any value? No. Because it's not doing what I need it to do. Intrinsic value is the thing is valuable in and of itself, not based on what it does, but based on what it is. Now, this idea of intrinsic value is something that is in great debate in in philosophic circles because how do things get value? It requires someone to assign it value, right? Someone somewhere has to decide that this thing has value. And so the way that philosophers talk about whether or not intrinsic value even exists is the idea that if you took every being from out of the universe, what would be left valuable? What still has value? And oftentimes people argue nothing. Because what good is happiness? Oftentimes people will say happiness is intrinsic value. Is happiness valuable if there's no one to experience happiness? Does it even exist? I don't know. Like, does a tree make a noise if it falls in the forest, right? Like, is it a thing if no one's experiencing it? Does health really matter if there's no body to keep healthy? Is that a thing? Is there anything that is valuable if you were to strip all human beings? What is left of value? The only thing that would be left of value would have intrinsic value because it doesn't require anyone ascribing it value. It just has it. Does that make sense? But... We know from God's word that there is something with intrinsic value. We know that if this world, if God were to decide tomorrow against his promises, which he would never do, but hypothetically speaking, if God were to decide tomorrow he was going to wipe out all of mankind, we know that there would still be something standing, and that is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God doesn't need us to ascribe it worth. The kingdom of God doesn't need us to exist. The kingdom of God is unmovable and unshakable and unchanging. It was there long before us, and if God decided to wipe us out, it would be there long after us. It has no beginning. It has no end. Its value doesn't change with the stock market or circumstance. The rule of God is never threatened or vulnerable. The safety of his people is never compromised or at risk. The reward of the kingdom is eternal and it's full and it's satisfied life with the one with whom we were created to dwell. There is not one thing that is more valuable than that. Because there's nothing else that holds value if this all goes away. Are you with me? Nothing else. Nothing holds value if this all ends tomorrow apart from the kingdom of God, God's reign over his place with his people. That's it. And so Jesus is telling us, the kingdom of heaven, should you find an invitation and an open door to enter the kingdom of heaven, there is nothing that will ever compare in value to what you are being given. Nothing. So much so that should it cost everything you had, you should feel like, man, I want to give all this up because that nothing is that. Nothing is as valuable as that. Nothing compares. 
This is what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of heaven is like finding treasure and being like, whew, I'm getting a sweet deal if all I have to do is give up everything that I have to get it. Right? And so Jesus, in these two illustrations, he's telling us that finding the kingdom of heaven is like winning the lottery on steroids. (laughs) The cost is pennies in comparison to the game. Pennies. And so we read passages like this, and we're like, yes, okay, kingdom of heaven is the most valuable thing. I just heard your super smart philosophical thing that you don't really understand, but you wrote down, so you were able to say it to us. I get it. The kingdom of heaven is the only thing of intrinsic value. I should value it above all else. Are we ready to be done with church? We all feel confident leaving this building and being like, done. I feel that way. I hope not, because the person preaching this sermon doesn't feel that way. This is hard. And there's a difference between digesting something and, 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 and wrestling with it and being like, yes, I've come to the logical conclusion that this is correct. There's a difference between that and then living our lives as if it's true. And so I think of all of us when we hear this, you know, for those of us that have been walking with Jesus any amount of time, we hear this. And we want, we want to feel that way. And maybe for some of you who've been walking with Jesus a shorter amount of time, you're like, man, like, I'm, I like, really believe this Jesus thing, and like, I love all, all that he offers me, but like, I can't even imagine feeling this way. Like, I'm so far from feeling this way, maybe I don't really get it. And I think for, for a lot of us, this can evoke a feeling of guilt. Like, oh, I'm not there. Man, I don't know that I would give up everything to follow Jesus. We want to get there. We can see the value of it. And yet when we evaluate our own hearts and the way we live our lives and the things that we really value, we're left feeling like, man, maybe I'm not doing a good job at this. Maybe I don't get it. Because it's hard to get there. So how do we get there? How do we get to a place where we see the kingdom of heaven, where we see following Jesus as the most valuable thing that, yeah, of course, Lord, whatever you call me to lay down, I'll lay it down in a heartbeat. How do we get there? Well, the problem is our hearts are disordered. Problem is our hearts are disordered. And disordered hearts lead to distorted values. Disordered hearts They lead to distorted values. What we long for and desire, we place value on, right? So like I said, the more I desire coffee, the more I'm willing to pay for it. The more we desire a promotion, the more we're uh, we're willing to work for it, right? The more I desire to look a certain way, the harder I'm willing to fight for it the more I'm willing to sacrifice for it. The more we desire a certain skill or ability, the more we're willing to train and practice for it. Whatever will feed the greatest desire of my heart, I will place the highest value on. Because we live towards what we love, what we desire, what we value. We direct our lives towards what we love what we value, what's in our heart. And the problem is that our hearts are disordered. 
the things we desire, the things that capture our hearts and our attention are cheap imitations that are at best fleeting and at worst destructive. Cheap imitations flooding our hearts, disordering it, fighting for the throne of our lives. And what I want us to see this morning is that discipleship to Jesus is the thing that reorders our hearts. Discipleship reorders our hearts. And I want to talk for a minute about how this happens. Last week, um, I mentioned that discipleship should transform us. Discipleship should change us. We talked about how if we haven't changed recently, if we haven't experienced growing pain, if we haven't met a, a tension spot of what I want and what God wants and wrestled through that, I would submit that we're probably cruising. Like we're probably in cruise control and, and God is of instrumental value. Uh, God is useful to me insofar that when I have something that I need, I pray to him and I ask him to put his blessing on what I want to do. But to submit to God... We feel a tension because there's a wrestle between our flesh and our spirit. So if we're not feeling, if we're not coming up against the wall of our own flesh ever, I want us to be sober-minded about are we letting Jesus change us? Or is he of instrumental value to our plan and our agenda? Discipleship should transform us. We should be changing. And as we follow Jesus, our hearts begin to be reordered with us. Because here's the thing, and we say this all the time, and I, most of us would be like, yeah, sure, that's true. We were made to know and love God. How many of you know that that is true? If you are sitting here and you have breath coming in and out of your nostrils, or your mouth, if you're a mouth breather there, no shame. <laughs> if you have breath coming in and out, that breath is still coming in and out of you because you were made to know and love God. You were created to know and love God. To be fully human is to know and love God. The Bible says eternal life is knowing God. Literally, what eternal life means is to know God. You are created to know and love and be in relationship with God. But we live in a world full of lesser loves. We live in a world full of shiny things that distract us, cheap treasures and counterfeit pearls. Things that falsely offer comfort and security and happiness and fulfillment things that promise to give us the life that we desire, the identity that we seek, the fulfillment that we're searching for. But you don't need me to tell you that these lesser loves never satisfy, do they? It's never enough. They will never satisfy us. It's like filling a bucket with a hole in it. No matter how fast you pour water into that bucket, no matter how much you pour into that bucket, it's falling out and it's not going to stay full. Because those things are never meant to satisfy us. Because the only thing that will ever satisfy the human heart is knowing and loving God. That's it. There's no replacement for it. This is what we're left with. Whether we like it or not, whether we embrace it or not, that's it. End of story. It's how we were created. And so discipleship to Jesus is the reordering of our hearts. It's learning to want what God wants. It's learning to live towards what God, live toward, what God lives towards. 
It's learning to desire him above all because he's the only thing that will satisfy. Discipleship to Jesus looks like the process of working this out with the Holy Spirit in our actual lives. And as we follow Jesus, as we learn from him, as we trust him with our lives and our choices and our actions and our hopes and our dreams and our identities, he's reordering our hearts. He's centering them on the, he's centering our love on where it was created to be centered on him. Every time we say no to our own way and we say yes to Jesus, every time we open our Bible and choose that I'm going to wake up 15 minutes earlier and be in God's word, every time we choose a spiritual discipline, every time we choose righteousness over sinfulness, every time we choose others over self, every time we choose the way of Jesus, he's reordering our hearts. The cranks are being turned in there and he's reordering them. Um, I've quoted this book before. I really love it. It's called um, um, You Are What You Love by James Smith. But he has this quote, and I put it on the screen for you guys. He says, Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his. To want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and crave a world where he is all and all, a vision encapsulated by that shorthand, the kingdom of God. To have our hearts so changed to be in line with the heart of God, to want what he wants, and to crave a world where he is everything. This is what discipleship to Jesus begins to do in our hearts. Now, here's the thing. Part of this happens by God's miraculous transformative power. Amen? There is so much about the spiritual formation process that we have no part of. That God in his goodness and his graciousness, he does in his people. And I'm so grateful for it. Because left on my own, I'm a disaster. Thank you, God, that you come in and you do all the heavy lifting for me. But... Discipleship to Jesus requires us saying, yes, I want that treasure. He can show us the treasure. He is always the initiator. He is always the inviter. He is always the one that says, here, I am available to you, come. But we participate. We respond. He says, here is the treasure of surpassing value. And then we have to say, yes, I agree with you, and now I'll take it, right? We participate. requires a response from us. We participate in the transformative work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us by responding in obedience. Jesus can say to us, this is the way to life, but we have to choose, yes, I want to go that way. Does that make sense? He can offer it to us, and then we choose to participate with the invitation. James Smith also says that discipleship is a way, I love this visual, it's a way of curating our heart. Discipleship is a way of curating our heart. It's being intentional, it's being intentional and attentive to what you love. Discipleship is being attentive to and intentional about what you love. 
a lot of the disordered desires of our hearts, they actually lie beneath our, our consciousness. A lot of the disordered desire of our hearts, they lie just beneath, beneath the, the surface of our consciousness. And what I mean by that is that we don't necessarily think, I desire success or security or beauty or wealth more than I desire Jesus. Most of us, that's not our process, right? We don't think, I desire to be, insert the blank, more than Jesus, and then we structure our lives around that being true. Most of us don't do that. They happen below the surface. But here's the problem. The values of the world are being dripped into our subconscious all day, every day. And so our hearts and our habits are being formed by the values of the world, right? They're being formed by the values of the world, oftentimes without us even knowing it. If you are working in a job that values overworking, you are constantly in an environment where what it looks like to mean it at work, what it looks like to be a team player, what it looks like to be successful, what it looks like to be whatever, looks like you need to value overworking. And the longer we work there, the more we start to rearrange the world in a way that makes that true, right? But these things are often happening at a subconscious level because it's happening all around us all the time. But as we follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit is actively at work in your life, wanting to reorder your heart and to reform your desires and to free you from the weight of chasing loves that will never satisfy you. And as we participate with the Holy Spirit, as we say yes, and we start to live towards what God has for us, as we practice daily laying down our pride and our plans and our identity and the image we want to portray to the world— And we begin to replace those things with new habits of spiritual disciplines, of the fruit of the Spirit, of choosing the way of Christ over the way of flesh. As we participate, our hearts begin to be reordered. Active discipleship to Jesus will change our habits. Changing our habits will change our desires. And as our desires change, our hearts begin to be ordered properly. Do you follow me on that? Active discipleship is participatory. Doesn't happen on accident. Doesn't happen by osmosis. Active active discipleship means I want to go your way. So I want to learn your way and then I want to do your way. And as we actively follow after Jesus, our habits change. How many of you guys, well, you don't have to raise your hands. But someone just like, let's just like feel in our hearts that we're not alone. How many of you guys were living your life at a certain point of time in a way that you're not very proud of now? And at that time, you wanted certain things. And as you gave your life to Jesus and decided these things are bad for me and I no longer want to participate in them, those desires changed. Right? Thanks, Ian. The rest of you left me hanging, but that's all right. That's right. I'm, I'm not insecure about it. I have a pass. Everyone does. But here's the thing. Our desires change when we choose to act differently. Right? 
So like, let's just use for example, you were going out and partying and drinking with your friends all the time and you decided that road leads to emptiness and separation from God and I want, I want relationship with God more than I want that and so I'm going to choose to not do that anymore. After a certain amount of time, you don't want to be there. You don't want to do that anymore. You're just like, oh gosh, like I'm super glad I'm not hungover today. Right? Like our desires change as our habits change. And so active discipleship to Jesus will change our habits and changing our habits will change our desires. And as our desires change, our hearts are reordered. And so when we read passages like this and we're like, man, I don't really value the kingdom like that. I don't know that I would give up everything to follow Jesus. I want to want God like that, but my heart wants so many things more. How do we change our desires? And what we're saying is we change our habits. We change the way that we live our lives. We change the the things that we do, but we change the way that we structure our lives. If all of your life revolves around work, your life is ordered in a way that your heart is going to be ordered around work and success and your identity and that role being at the forefront of your heart. If your whole life, mothers, because it's Mother's Day, but also fathers, if your whole life is your kids, if your whole life is your kids, you're going to structure your world and your heart in a way that those kids sit on the throne, and that's going to affect your marriage. It's going to affect you, your relationship with Jesus. It's going to affect so many things. Anything, insert the blank, anything that we value more than Jesus, we, 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 we schedule, we, we structure our lives towards that value. And discipleship to Jesus is learning to re- reform our lives in hopes that we can desire Jesus above all else. I grew up, um, I grew up going to church and knowing about Jesus. Um, I, I do think I probably like loved him at a young age um, in a way that a child loves Jesus, um, which I wish that was the way we love Jesus our whole life is the way that a child loves Jesus. Um, but I also think that God had instrumental value to me. And this is what I mean. Like I really needed God to please tonight not let it be the night when the big one hits. Like, I was, like, a little kid in elementary school in, like, the early 90s. And, like, I don't know why, but, like, I very much remember that time of life being defined as, like, the big one's going to come any day. Right? You know what I mean by the big one, the earthquake? If you've just moved here to California and you don't know that, sorry. It's still coming, apparently. But but I remember every night, every night before, I don't even think my mom knows this, every night before I went to bed, I remember praying like, oh God, please don't let the big one hit. <laughs> like, like, I really needed Jesus so that the big one wouldn't come. Or I really needed Jesus to help me get an A on that test that I didn't study for. Like, Jesus was of instrumental value. Because here's the thing, the heart of God is that he's like, yes, like, ask things of me and I want to respond and give you good things. But it's, it's not because he's a tool for us to get what we want. It's because he's a good father. And he loves us, right? But as a kid, I didn't know that. And so, you know, I I would ask for things of God. As I got older, though, here's the thing, what happened to me. The things that I valued were no longer the things that God could give me. Because what I wanted was what God didn't want for me. 
Does that make sense? I wanted things that were not what God wanted for me. And so I decided, you are not going to give me those things that I want because I know you don't want them for me. And so now you are of no more use to me. And I will go my own way to get the things that I think that I want. And so I went my own way and I made my own choices and I made a big fat mess of things. And at 19, uh, my whole 19-year-old world just fell apart all around me. Uh, The world exploded, my heart was broken, and I realized that everything that I valued, everything that I left my God to pursue, left me empty and hurting and ashamed. And I remember crying and being like, man, I've blown this thing up, and I knew I knew where value laid, lied, laid, where it was. (laughs) Oh, that was a way bigger laugh than my poor grammar should have uh, elicited. But I knew, I knew, I knew where I could find it. I knew where I would be whole. I knew it, but I did not feel it. I knew it, but I didn't feel it. And so I went with a friend to this college worship night thing, and I remember, all I remember is I sat in there and I sobbed the whole time, half because my heart was broken because of things that I had allowed to happen to it, half because I was in this, like, worshipful environment where I just felt like a phony and, like, I don't even want to worship you. Like, I don't even know what this is anymore. And here's what I told God in that moment. I sat there. I don't remember what the guy talked about. I don't remember the worship song. I don't remember anything about the night. And I remember telling God, I know that I need you. I know you're it. I know it. But I don't want you. I don't want you. Like, I cannot muster it in my heart. I don't want to do it your way. I don't want you. But I know that I need you. So I'm going to make you a deal. (laughs) Sometimes I just think God is up there and he's like, oh, I love you so much. (laughs) Sure. Let's make a deal. And I told God, I'm going to wake up every morning and I'm going to tell you, I don't want you, but I want to want you. And I need you to make me want you. Because I can't do anything else. Like, I don't have the desire in my heart to obey you in any other way, to give any more of myself. But I'm going to acknowledge to you every morning that I don't want you, but that I need you and I want you to make me want you. And I prayed that every morning, and I don't remember when it stopped. But I remember that everything changed. Because God's a sweet father who sometimes lets his kids think that they're making a deal with him. (laughs) But his desire is for his kids to be with him. His desire is to reveal to his kids the surpassing value of knowing him and being loved by him. And when his little kid says, I don't want you because I've disordered my heart in such a way that you're nowhere near the top. Like, you're not even in there. But I want, I want you to be, and I want to want you. He's so sweet that he reorders our hearts. But what happened was, I formed a new habit. I woke up every morning, and I told God, I told the God of the universe that I didn't want him. Smug child. Told him that I didn't want him, but that I wanted to want him. And you know what that did? It formed a new habit of waking up every morning and thinking about God first. I didn't know that I was doing that. That's what I did. You know what forming a habit of waking up every morning and thinking about God first does? 
It takes you on a journey where you end up becoming a pastor. Just kidding. <laughs> this wasn't my plan. This was never supposed to happen. But God changes us. Like this person teaching this sermon was that kid who was like, I don't want you. But as we change our habits, as we change our behavior, as we reorder our lives pointing towards Jesus in hopes that he might change our hearts as we live towards it, he does change our hearts. So when we read these passages and we're like, I want to value you above all else, but I just don't feel like that. How do I get there? We get there by changing our lives. We get there by being obedient. We get there by forming new habits, these things called spiritual disciplines that we start to get nervous to talk about because we don't want people to feel like they earn their salvation. No, they're tools that God gives us. Like, I'm going to invite you to learn new rhythms and new structures and a way to reorder your life because this is the way of freedom from the lesser loves that the weight of trying to make them fill you weighs you down. And he gives us a new way, and it's called discipleship. It's called being a student of the rabbi who leads us one step at a time, meets us right where we are, and gives us our next best step. And we say yes one step at a time. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We train our hearts all the time what to value. What we read, the people we choose to follow, the way we use our time and structure our schedules. All the time we're making choices about how we will form our hearts. But discipleship to Jesus is an invitation to recognize, respond to, and rest in the matchless value of the kingdom of God. Discipleship is an invitation because Jesus is inviting us daily to recognize a better way. He looks at his poor kids who are trying to pour water into a bucket with a hole in it. And he's inviting us to a better way. Jesus is inviting us to respond to that freedom by choosing to reorder our lives in a way that might reorder our hearts. To reprioritize our calendars. To reprioritize the things that we spend our money on to reprioritize the hopes and the dreams and the plans and the goals that we have in light of the mission of Jesus, not in addition to. And Jesus is inviting us to then rest, to rest in knowing that if you have found Jesus and you have responded to Jesus, that you have entered into a kingdom that is unshakable, that should this whole world pass away tomorrow, you have found the one thing of intrinsic, surpassing value. Never changes, never wavers, never loses value. When we invite God to change our hearts and to reorder our loves and desires, the things of the world grow dim. We decide what we're willing to pay or give up or sacrifice based on how much we value the thing we will gain. The more we value Jesus, the more we are willing to give up to follow him because we trust him, because we've counted the cost and there is nothing more valuable than Jesus. 
And so if you can't say that this morning, you're in good company. I just want you to know. If you're like, oh, I just am not there, but like, God, I want to want you. I want, you in a, I want to invite you to, to pray the prayer today that changed my whole life. I want to invite you, as, as we enter in time of worship, maybe tell God, I don't want you like that, but I want to want you like that. And our God is so gracious. He's so good. And he might just make you a pastor. <laughs> And so I want to invite you to invite Jesus to change your heart this morning. Let's tell God that we want him above all else. When we sing these songs, it's often, it's often hard because we're singing these songs and we're like, oh man, I feel like a hypocrite because I don't feel that way. We sing them before we feel that way. And it starts to help us to feel that way. I want to read this, this last quote as we enter into worship. Same book, same author. Obviously, I like it. He says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship is not just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship, listen to this, because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Thank you for listening to Remembrance Community Church Podcast. You can find all our weekly sermons online at remembrancecommunity.org forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.